I think everyone here knows that what we call CSP uh, stands for Community Scholar Program. And if we were to put into just a phrase what CSP is all about, we ignite passion for Judaism. And that's, that's what we're here for. And it is uh, appropriate on this occasion that I mention uh, the, the passing just today of uh, Rabbi Harold Schulweiss, who was one of the greats, the great thinkers, the great innovators, the great leaders of our American Jewish community. Among his many, many accomplishments, he was the founder of Jewish World Watch, and of him we truly can say, Zecher Tzadik Libracha, the memory of this righteous man will be a blessing. This is the 14th year of CSP. It's kind of hard to believe that it's been that long since our first event in 2001. And over these years, we have hosted 13 one-month scholars, 12 summer scholars, 11 family retreats, 10 community Shabbat Alive events. This was all written by Ari Katz, and I told him that I would refrain from setting this to music, because it would sound like something like, da 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 you know what I mean, okay. But don't tell him I said it. Uh, 10 dads and kids camping trips, nine family summer camp adventures, and over, count them, 500 events with some of the most interesting and inspiring and passionate presenters in the world. So uh, I am uh, Rabbi Steve Einstein, I'm a board member of CSP, and I am standing in tonight for uh, Ari Katz, who is missing the first opening night ever. Uh, he is in Detroit for Simcha, his uh, nephew's bar mitzvah, and we say mazal tov. Uh, we are grateful to Temple Bat Yam, and particularly to Rabbi Gersh Zilberman, my dear colleague and friend, for opening up this wonderful facility for our opening night. Also, I would like to thank the Jewish Federation and Family Services for an impact grant, and of course, all who may be donors to CSP. We are a membership-based organization, and we do uh, depend on you. So, if you are a donor to CSP, would you stand so we can uh, recognize and acknowledge you? Any of the people who are donors and supporters? Thank you very much. And a special thank you, you may have seen the cake inside, uh, honoring Polly Sloan, who is here tonight, longtime board member and supporter of CSP. And she was the very first to participate in the CSP Legacy Program. I think many of you know that that Legacy Program is uh, through the Orange County Jewish Community Foundation, and uh, at the entrance you can get information on that. So what do we have coming up this month? Well, it's a whole month, so that means in 30 days there will be nearly 30 presentations. And uh, if you haven't uh, received one yet, be sure and look at the One Month Scholar brochure. The, the theme, general theme of the month is revolutions, ruptures, and revisions, transformations in Judaism. 
By the way, for those of you who like to look at iTunes, we do have a CSP podcast on iTunes, uh, and it is called OCCSP Podcast. We have over 150 recordings of past programs, so if you've missed some and would like to catch up, be sure and take a look. And, um, oh yes, the cell phone announcement. You know what that means, right? Today's topic, I mean, enough of this. We actually came to hear a scholar. Uh, this, the topic tonight is anything but secret on the ironically public role of Kabbalah in shaping Judaism. I'm sure you've all had the opportunity to read the bio on uh, Professor Hartley Lachter. Uh, so I want to give you just one new piece of info that is not yet published because it was just announced. Uh, Dr. Lachter, uh, in addition to being Associate Professor of Religion Studies, holds the Philip and Muriel Berman Chair in Jewish Studies and is the Director of the Berman Center for Jewish Studies, all at Lehigh University. The new piece, not yet printed, is he has just been named the Director of the Department of Religion Studies at Lehigh. So um, he is a <laughs> truly one of the uh, emerging young scholars that, uh, with God's help, will all be around for many years to learn from him, not only this month, but in the years to come as he continues to, to learn, to grow, and to to teach all of us. But tonight, we're looking forward to lecture number one. Thank you, and thank you so much to the CSP uh, for inviting me here, and to the community for uh, your welcoming and um, warm, generous spirit for holding this program. I'm incredibly delighted and flattered uh, to be asked to be here, um, and just to be able to experience the, the, the hospitality of your community. I've only been here for a few hours, and already um, Gaila Wilner has fed me kosher Chinese food. Uh, so uh, clearly my, um, my good friend Mark Michael Epstein, who was here a few years ago, I was just, I see some of you know him, uh, I was just at the Association for Jewish Studies conference in Baltimore, um, and I saw him and he said that this was really a, an exceptional experience for him, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it very much myself. As was mentioned, the theme of this series is ruptures, revolutions, transformations. And I think of this as an interesting way, kind of a prism to examine Jewish history because Jewish history has had so many moments of transformation, moments of change, some of them quite disruptive. There was the destruction of the temple and the shift away from priestly Judaism to rabbinic Judaism. There have been migrations and expulsions throughout the Middle Ages. There was the Enlightenment, a complete transformation in Western history, one that affected Jews, affected everyone. There were industrial revolutions, there was the emergence of the New World, there were the tragic conflicts of the 20th century. Many religions come and go, and yet Judaism is still here. And one of the questions that animates my research is, how did this happen? How is it that among the many religions to emerge from the ancient Near East, Judaism has persisted? 
Judaism has survived. So now the aspect of Judaism that I study, which is Jewish mystical literature, or Kabbalah, might sound very arcane. It might sound like this is a small and somewhat um, reserved aspect of Judaism, designed only for an elite, or that this would somehow be not part of what animates the experience of many Jews. But what I've come to discover as I've explored these texts is that this is not the case. Kabbalah has been a very important element in how Jews have understood themselves and how Jews have imagined themselves, and that this is part of the story of how Judaism has persisted. At first, when I started graduate school, I thought, well, I study Kabbalistic literature. I was very interested in the Zohar. I was very interested in medieval Jewish texts. And when my parents, friends would ask me, so what are you doing in graduate school? I would say, I'm studying medieval Jewish mystical literature. And it was never entirely clear that that was a satisfying answer. They would all ask me, so are you going to get a job with that? In fact, my mom was asking me that very same question. But now when I think about what it is that I do, I study Jews. I study Jewish people, and I think about the ways that they cope with the condition of being Jews in the world. How they figure out what that means, how they have made that sustainable and meaningful. But Kabbalah, as I mentioned, is not an unimportant part of that story. Now first, one of the things that it seems everyone knows about Kabbalah is that it's a secret. How many of you have heard that? If it's such a secret, how come everybody knows that it's a secret? <laughs> and of course, secrets are powerful. Secrets are part of what makes knowledge desirable. Why do my courses in Kabbalah enroll so well? And I think there's something alluring about the notion of the secret. I've certainly learned this from my children. If you tell them, guys, mommy's got a special surprise for you when we get home, they're barely going to last the five-minute car ride to the house because it's so, you just want to know. Knowledge that is being withheld is in fact just another way of saying this is knowledge that's valuable and that people want to know. It's another way of saying this is something important. Ironically, secrets are powerful by not being kept. In fact, I would go so far as to say secrecy is a way of sharing something. By marking it as a secret, what we in fact accomplish is we say this is something that is powerful. This is something that is desirable. Esotericism is in fact the word when we say something is esoteric. Esotericism refers to concealed knowledge. Knowledge that somehow is at least regarded as or talked about as though it is a secret. And one of the things that we observe when we look at the history of esoteric wisdom or secret knowledge in the history of Western culture is that it's very popular. <laughs> the ironies of this secret is that this leads to the dissemination of the very thing that is called a secret. It increases what we might call the social capital of that particular domain of information. Now Kabbalah is a particular form of esoteric wisdom. It's a uniquely Jewish form of esoteric wisdom. 
It's regarded as knowledge revealed by God to either Moses on Mount Sinai in some articulations of it. In other cases, it's regarded as knowledge that's revealed to certain people by angels or by the prophet Elijah, and that this happens in the past, that it happens in the past and then is passed on from generation to generation, that this is received knowledge. And the word Kabbalah comes from the Hebrew word lekabel to receive, that this is knowledge that is received, not knowledge that is derived with the human mind. And what essentially that says about this particular form of wisdom is that it tells us something important about the divine world, and it can't simply be conjured by the logical operations of the intellect. Instead, this has to be given. It's sort of like the difference between finding the solution to a mathematical problem, which can be derived with the mind, or learning someone's name, which you can only know by being told. It's like guessing Rumpelstiltskin. The only way you can know is to be told. There's no logical trick that will derive that information for you. So as one Kabbalist from the 13th century puts it, he says, happy are the people of Israel in this world and in the world to come. For the Holy One, blessed be he, revealed secrets to them that have not been revealed to any other people. So in that text, it's referring to Kabbalah as special knowledge, as revealed knowledge, and as knowledge that the Jewish people are very, very fortunate to possess. But the author of that same anonymous text goes on and describes this knowledge in this way, describes Kabbalah in this way. He says, the Torah in all of its detail and narratives from beginning to end contains matters inaccessible to the intellect, for they have been made known to us only through tradition, Kabbalah, one person receiving from another, reaching back to Moses, our teacher, peace be upon him, on Mount Sinai. So again, this knowledge can't be known through the rational mind, but it can be known through tradition. And Kabbalists often argue that the rational mind is great for thinking rational, scientific matters. It's good for deriving the solution to mathematical problems. It can be very good for um, developing medical knowledge. And there were quite a number of medieval Kabbalists as well as medieval philosophers who were uh, physicians. But the Kabbalists were different from the philosophers in this one essential point. They believed that the most important forms of knowledge, Jewish or otherwise, were the kinds that were received by tradition that started with some kind of revelation directly from God, and that that knowledge can't be acquired through any other means. So just as in the rabbinic tradition, there was the notion of the written Torah given to Moses in writing on Mount Sinai, and the oral Torah given to Moses orally that came to be uh, embodied in the, the Mishnah and Gemara, Kabbalists essentially articulate a vision of another oral Torah, and that this other oral Torah provides the meaning of all of the rest of the Jewish tradition, and that Kabbalah is this other extra secret oral tradition that Jews know, know because it's been passed on through the generations of Jewish teachers to disciples, and that this other tradition, this Kabbalah, 
provides the true inner core of what Judaism is really about. This is the nature of the Kabbalistic claim. Now, the basic doctrine of Kabbalah is actually, I would argue, very simple. And I know that sounds surprising, but it was not intended in the Middle Ages simply to be a doctrine for the elite. While there were certain very detailed and very complicated discussions of Kabbalah that were probably only comprehensible to people who were quite knowledgeable and had read quite a bit of Kabbalah, there were many descriptions of Kabbalah that were intended to be readily available to as many Jews as possible. And this is because my argument is that Kabbalah has been important in Jewish history because it spoke to the hopes and aspirations of many Jews. And that Kabbalists sought to disseminate this knowledge. In fact, even calling it secret knowledge was part of an attempt to spread this knowledge among their fellow Jews because they believed that it would be helpful to them. They believed that there was something about the Kabbalistic doctrine that would revive Judaism even as it transformed it, that it would preserve Judaism even as it changed it. Put differently, Kabbalists believed that their doctrine would help many Jews cope with the Jewish condition and find meaning in it. Now, the basic structure of Kabbalistic thought is as follows. They claim that God is composed of very complex inner self with 10 aspects, and these 10 aspects are referred to as the spherot. Now, the spherot are not the same as the, the Greek word for sphere, about referring to round orbs. The spherot, it comes from the word sapir. Um, this word carries the connotation of luminosity. It also comes from the same verb root for enumeration um, and narration. These recount, tell the story of the luminous inner life of God. And these 10 emanations of the divine come from Ein Sof, the endless. And that from Ein Sof, the light of God emanates down into the 10 spirot and then down into the world. The Jewish soul, they claim, is also considered to be a spark of the divine from Ein Sof that comes down through the spirot and is embodied in Jews. And therefore, when Jews perform the mitzvot, when they practice the commandments, when they practice Judaism, the Kabbalists argue they influence the spirot, they influence God, uniting the different spirot together in harmony, which then sustains the cosmos. It's a very bold claim. It's a claim that what Jews do literally holds the fabric of the universe together. And this bold claim provides a tremendously powerful image of what the practice of Judaism is all about and what the transgression of Judaism is, is also, in, in, what is implied in that. Because they would say, alternately, when Jews transgress the commandments, they cause division among the spherot, they interrupt the flow of the light of Ein Sof into the world, and they cause destruction. As one medieval Kabbalist puts it, by the merit of Israel observance of the Torah, the world is sustained. Or, as another medieval Kabbalist comments on, here specifically he's thinking of the nature of prayer, he says, consider and know how deep the power of prayer is. By means of prayer properly performed, 
All of the spirot are united, and the overflow pours forth from above to below, and the upper and lower entities are blessed by he who prays. So this conception of the power of Jewish practice is reliant upon the notion that the ten spirot are somehow in a dynamic relationship with one another. And the catalysts go on at quite some length, going into the details of each of the names of the spirot and the particular ways that they relate to one another or don't, the ways that they are in harmony or disharmony based on Jewish actions. They also claim that the spirot are shaped in the form of a human person, in the form of a human body, that the divine and human forms reflect one another. And they're careful to point out that they're not saying God has a physical body, but that the spirot form the, the kind of spiritual image of the divine, and that the human body, when practicing the commandments, is a reflection of the divine world. Also contained within the concept of the spirot is a love narrative. And here they provide something very dynamic and very passionate in terms of how they understand the world of the spirot. They claim that the sixth svirah, called Tiferet, is the divine husband, and the tenth, the lowest of the spirot, the Shekhinah, is the divine wife, the lover and beloved of uh, the Song of Songs, and that it's a kind of drama of exile, that with the exile of the Jewish people, the Shekhinah is separated from her husband in the divine realm, she accompanies, Jews in the exile, and she embodies their longing to return to redemption, to return to God, just as she longs to return to her husband in the realm of the Sphirot. And that when Jews perform the commandments, they reunite the divine bride and bridegroom. And that when they transgress the commandments, they draw them apart. They speak about the Sabbath as being particularly a moment of drama when on Friday night, through the practice of rituals, Jews bring this bride and bridegroom together. It's a love story. It's a love story in the divine world wrought by Jews practicing Judaism in this world. And this was a powerful image that appealed to many Jews for many different reasons. But God and the Jewish self are quite radically reimagined in Kabbalah. This is conservative in some ways, and quite radical in others. So in the Talmud, in, and in Talmudic Judaism, there is no doctrine of the Sfirot that we can find. There's also no doctrine of the notion of the divine soul. There is a soul, or a nishama, according to rabbinic Judaism, but throughout rabbinic literature, throughout the Talmud, there is no claim that the soul is, in essence, a spark of the divine self. Um, but this is a, an idea that we start to see with the, the, the time of Rabbi Moses Nachmanides in the Middle Ages, and it becomes a cornerstone of Kabbalistic thinking. However, Kabbalah is also fairly conservative in many respects, in that it reinforces the practice of Jewish law by giving it this tremendous power. And this new notion of the, the spirot and the power of human actions, the power of the practice of mitzvot to influence the divine world and sustain the cosmic order is presented as something old, not as something new. It's presented as something revealed by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
And in fact, there's an explanation encoded within Kabbalah itself as to why we don't see discussions of these ideas before the 13th century. And of course, can you imagine what, what exactly is the argument as to why Maimonides, who lives a little bit before the time of the first Kabbalist, isn't discussing uh, Kabbalistic matters, or Rashi, or others who are a little bit too early for, for Kabbalah. What might a Kabbalist who's very enthusiastic about Kabbalah, how do they understand the fact that these earlier authorities, as well as the Talmud itself, don't speak explicitly about these ideas? Right, as I see, it's a secret. It's, a, it's been kept secret. And so the function of secrecy here serves all sorts of ways of helping Kabbalah become a doctrine that doesn't upend Judaism. It doesn't involve a rejection of Judaism. It's presented as continuous with the Jewish tradition. But the Rambam said, who was an Aristotelian, he didn't believe because there's no logic in it. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, we'll actually speak about some of the conflicts over the course of this, uh, this month between the Maimonides and the Kabbalists because Maimonides would, would be horrified by many of the doctrines of the Kabbalists. And what we find is over the course of history, um, Maimonides loses and the Kabbalists win. Um, there are very few people who actually read Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed in tremendous detail. Many more read the Zohar. And it's an interesting question when we look at what's on the shelves of the libraries. It's not Aristotelian logical syllogisms about the incorporeality of God as the unmoved mover of the universe. They talk about the bridegroom and the bride. And they talk about the mysteries of the divine realm. They talk about the power of the practice of Judaism, not how logical it is, but how meaningful it is. And something about that way of approaching Judaism has been a tremendously powerful force in Jewish history for Jews in the construction of Jewish identity and Jewish meaning. So now, quick history of Kabbalah. Where exactly does this come from? How is it, from the perspective of the history of Judaism, that this radical development was embraced rather than rejected? So first, we have to think about where and when Kabbalah develops. It begins in the first evidence we see of it is in the late 12th century in southern France. And there, it seems to be fairly restricted to a relatively small number of rabbis in that area. We start to see a text circulating in the early 13th century in that region known as the Sefer Habahir, or the Book of Brightness. And the first Kabbalist that we find named anywhere is named Isaac the Blind. And uh, interesting that in a doctrine so uh, suffused with imagery of light, the first Kabbalist is, uh, is blind. And they use, they use the, uh, the, the, the Aramaic locution Yitzchak Sagi Nahor. Um, which means someone who has had too much light, right? as though he's been blinded. And people have debated, was he really blind, or was, he, uh, was this just a euphemism for his Kabbalistic enlightenment? Um, it's not entirely clear, but he didn't write that much. And what he did write is very difficult to decipher. However, some students from his, uh, his school, they end up in parts of um, northern Spain, and they begin to write Kabbalah and Kabbalistic texts um, with tremendous uh, uh, enthusiasm. And Isaac the Blind is actually um, 
quite uncomfortable with this because he says that this was a doctrine that his fathers, um, including the, the famous uh, Ravad, who was a very important rabbi in southern France, that they, they didn't talk about openly and they didn't talk about where it comes from, except that it's, it's revelatory in origin. And of course, as perhaps befits a, a mysterious uh, doctrine like Kabbalah, we're not actually sure where Kabbalistic doctrines come from before the late 12th and early 13th centuries. Is it that these ideas derive in some ways from Palestine? Do they come from elsewhere? We're really not sure. So mystery shrouds the origins of Kabbalah, which perhaps is tremendously appropriate. But Isaac the Blind's students and the students of his students start writing texts in Spain quite openly, texts that are designed to explain Kabbalah to people who are not initiated in that lore. And Isaac of Blind becomes very upset about this. He actually writes an angry letter to Nachmanides. He's not angry at Nachmanides, Rabbi Moses ben Nachman. He's not angry at him directly. But he says there are students in cities like Girona who are writing about Kabbalah quite openly, and they're talking about it quite openly. And he says once a text is written, there is no cupboard in the world that can hold it. The author might lose the text, the author might pass away, and the, 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 these, these books will pass from one hand to the other. And the next thing you know, Kabbalah will become a matter for chatter in the marketplace. It certainly entered the marketplace. And in fact, Nachmanides was one of the most important voices to help that process along. Because while he was fairly reserved in how he discusses Kabbalah in his famous Torah commentary, he does say that Kabbalah is a legitimate tradition and that it reveals the true secret inner core of Judaism that's been there but has not been articulated in the Jewish tradition. And that really opened up the space for Kabbalah to be disseminated as a legitimate Jewish doctrine. And what we find is that as Kabbalah migrates from the region of Catalonia, where we have Girona and Barcelona, where there were well-established, well-ordered Jewish communities, to Castile, which was by comparison the wild, wild west, things really changed. Castile was a completely different region. It had been fairly recently reconquered from Muslim control and was under the control of Alfonso X. It was a frontier region. And of course, when you have a frontier region in medieval Iberia, you need to restart the economy. What do you need to restart your economy, get capital markets moving? Jews, because otherwise, otherwise there is no startup capital. It's a serious problem. Christians cannot lend on interest to other Christians. So how on earth do you get your economy moving? Jews living in this period were very important. They were the ones who were providing loans. They also did a lot of other things for these kings. They were their translators. They were their diplomats. They were also their tax farmers. Collecting taxes has never been a popular job. The king doesn't like collecting taxes. So of course, if you need someone to collect taxes, who are you going to ask? Jews, right. The other thing that was really important is that Jews can be taxed at any rate, whereas Christians can't be. There were limits on how much taxation the crown or the, the king could tax Christians, but Jews could be taxed at any, they could be taxed at 80% per year. 
So it was in the interest of the king to have Jews lending money on a high interest rate to Christians, making a substantial income, starting the economy, and then that income could be taxed at these enormous rates by the king. And also kings, they borrowed monies from Jews as well. So this was part of the role that Jews played. But they played another really important role in the particular context of Castile. Jews were the ones who were translating texts into Castilian from other languages like Arabic in particular. And this was important for King Alfonso X in Castile because he longed to be the Holy Roman Emperor. And to be the Holy Roman Emperor, he had to amass the world's knowledge in his library. And he wanted to have it translated into Castilian to show not only did he have a library that was comprehensive, he had a library in his language that preserved the knowledge of the world. He didn't end up becoming the Holy Roman Emperor, but he wanted to be. And in the descriptions of his attempts to amass the world's knowledge, one by his nephew says specifically that he provided uh, translations to be, he provided for the commissioning of translations of Jewish texts, including the Talmud, and they say, and also the Kabbalah, the secret, secret doctrine of the Jews, which they guard most zealously. Although not too zealously, because the king had it and was in fact seeking to translate it into Castilian. We don't have any manuscripts left that show Castilian Kabbalistic documents from that period, from the 1250s, 1260s, but it's clear that this was something that was happening, or at least that the king aspired for that to happen. And Jews were seen as holders of secrets. Christians believed that Jews were in fact the ones present on Mount Sinai at the time of Revelation, and they also regarded Jews as capable of unlocking other forms of secret knowledge. In a text written fairly early in King Alfonso's uh, lifetime in the 1250s, he has a text about the secret properties of stones, the magical properties of stones. He says it's a text written in Arabic, but owned by a Jewish person who was reluctant to share its content. So the king purchases this book for him and brings it to another Jewish associate of his. And the king has another Jew translate an Arabic text that he gets from a first Jew about the magical properties of stones, which was in and of itself a text that was really about the magical properties of King Alfonso. So clearly Jews are important in this context, but more than that, Jews are holders of secrets within the cultural logic of Reconquista Castile. And it's in that moment that Kabbalists utilize a similar way of thinking about Jews, that they are indeed holders of secrets. This power in Castile ushered in a tremendously transformatively productive period in the history of the production of Jewish Kabbalistic literature. In the 1270s to the early 1300s, there are hundreds, more than a thousand Kabbalistic texts of various lengths that are written. It's during this period that the famous Moses de Leon and others write their many Kabbalistic texts it's also during this same period, perhaps by those same Kabbalists, that we start to find the composition and distribution of the Zohar, the Book of Splendor, the most important Kabbalistic text written really at any point. 
However, also at this same time is when hundreds of anonymous Kabbalistic texts begin to circulate. And many of these texts are short, and they are quick descriptions of the ten Svirot, of the whole system of Ein Sof, the Svirot, and the world, the divine soul, and the power of the practice of the mitzvot. Some of them are only three or four pages long. I've seen others that are 50 or 60 pages long. And there are hundreds of these texts. Now, the question then is, for thinking about the development of Kabbalah, what's the most important source? The Bahir and the Zohar, which are in fact quite elaborate and quite complex. Or these other anonymous texts. And what I've found is that those shorter, unpublished, anonymous passages about Kabbalah, they reveal a completely different story, not just about the history of Kabbalah, but about the experience of Jews in medieval Spain and a strategy for dealing with Jewish life that went on to have many, many important repercussions in later periods. So one of the things I, I really love to do is go to libraries that have large holdings of Hebrew manuscripts and read Hebrew manuscripts. One of my favorite places is the, the, the Asian and African reading room at the British Library where they have a wonderful collection of Hebrew manuscripts and you can order the, the book to be brought out to you and soon someone brings it out on a little pillow. There's a 700-year-old Hebrew book waiting for someone to read it. There are more than 100,000 Hebrew manuscripts around the world. So, the, the, the British Library, Oxford, the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York uh, has a wonderful collection. And of the many, many other holdings that are throughout Italy, uh, um, Germany, and Russia, many of these can be found in microfilm form at the, the Institute for the Microfilm of Hebrew Manuscripts in Jerusalem. So going either to these direct libraries or to the Institute for the Microfilming of Hebrew Manuscripts is one of my favorite things. And when I open up a new manuscript that perhaps no one has really looked at in, in hundreds of years and start to read it and hear these echoes of Jewish experiences, I, I, I get a flutter in my heart. And, and manuscripts are incredibly exciting to me. And I remember coming home from a manuscript uh, a trip to England, and I was telling some friends about the, the experience I had with these manuscripts, and look, they are amazing, I'm showing them pictures on my iPad. And a friend of mine said, Hartley, I really think you need to expand your list of hobbies. <laughs> Which, perhaps, fair enough. But we shouldn't forget that printing is, is a business, and that when a book is printed, it reflects what someone in the 16 or 17 or 1800s thinks will be a marketable volume in their particular circumstance. It doesn't tell us what someone in the 1300s thought was important. And so when the Zohar is, is printed in the mid uh, 1500s, this printing doesn't necessarily mean that the Zohar is the most reflective document for thinking about medieval Jewish experience or for thinking about the history of Kabbalah. But when we look at those anonymous documents, they tell us something really incredible and really surprising. They say things like one text that I found from a Munich Library manuscript that says that he wrote this text, quote, for anyone who desires to understand the wisdom of the Kabbalah in its entirety. And he goes on to say that one who reads this text, quote, can comprehend the intention of all of the commandments of Israel for all of the Torah and the prophets and the writings and all of the Talmud are bound to one another 
and all of them depend upon the spirot. Therefore, we must understand their order. And there are many, many comments like this throughout the anonymous texts that are written in the Middle Ages. And these texts are designed to spread the idea of this Kabbalistic conception of Judaism that I've, I've just briefly described. Now, what's really quite remarkable about this is that this, this Kabbalistic idea was not simply rejected out of hand as something new. Instead, many Jews embraced the idea that it was, in fact, merely the new emergence of something quite old. And that is a remarkable thing. And one of the questions I would, I would ask is, how does Kabbalah then help them generate meaning? How does Kabbalah help Jews understand the place of Jews in the world? What were they struggling with? And there were many, many arguments directed against Judaism by Christian preachers in the Middle Ages. And most of them Jews actually ignored. It's, pretty, it's really a remarkable fact that Jews did not convert to Christianity in large numbers in Spain in the 1300s. We actually don't see this until much later into the, the, the 1400s. Well, in the, the late 1200s to the early 1300s, conversion is rare. And it's really not for another 150 or 200 years that conversion becomes, um, becomes a, a, a more pronounced phenomenon on the Iberian Peninsula. And the question is, well, why not? Jews were in a difficult circumstance. But the arguments that were directed against Judaism were essentially claims that the Jewish tradition embraces the doctrine that Jesus is the Messiah. And very few Jews were persuaded by this. But there was one argument that troubled them. And this was what we call the argument from history. Essentially, the claim that Jews live in weak political circumstances and that their physical security is quite tenuous. And therefore, it must be a claim, the Christian polemicists argue, that this must, be a, this must be proof that God has abandoned the Jews, that God no longer hears their prayers. Because Jews, we pray every day for peace and security and, and, and prosperity. So when this isn't happening, of course, also praying for messianic redemption. The argument from the Christian critics was, clearly Judaism is passe, Christianity must be right. And while Kabbalists didn't think Christianity was right, they certainly were concerned about this argument. There's actually a passage in the Zohar that cites an interesting sort of example of this precise anxiety. It says, a Gentile wise man asked Rabbi Eleazar, you say you are closer to the king than all other peoples. Should not those who are closest to the king always be joyous with no affliction, fear, or oppression? For you live in constant suffering, oppression, and misery more than any other people in the world. Whereas we are not afflicted by suffering, oppression, or misery at all. We are closer to the supernal king and you are far from him. So the text goes on to say that first, quote, Rabbi Eleazar glared at him until he was made into a heap of bones. <laughs> but then it says that Rabbi Eleazar says, I asked this very question of Elijah in the supernal yeshiva, in the heavenly world. I asked this question. And the answer he's given is a kind of complicated answer that Israel is like the heart of the world, and just as the heart is a small but very important and powerful organ, but it suffers more than, say, the legs, um, that Jews are like the heart of the world. But that idea of Jews as being the central and important heart of the world that suffers works in the Kabbalistic model, where Jewish power 
is wielded through the practice with their bodies of their laws. And that when they practice those laws, they do something remarkable, but something hidden. They're sort of like superheroes. You can't tell that they're powerful, but they are powerful. Is it any wonder that you know, Jewish boys were writing Marvel comics? That they, it's, a, it's a superhero image of what the power of Judaism could mean. But it also accounts for Jewish experience. It says, yes, it looks like Jews are having a very hard time. But if it weren't for you, the world would literally blink out. And the bride and the bridegroom in heaven would be torn apart. Stay the course. As they thought through these kinds of questions, they essentially invert the, the image of Jewish history. Instead of Jews being the weakest people, they are in fact the strongest. Instead of Judaism being irrelevant, it is in fact the key to existence. And then rather than waiting for redemption, for the catalyst, Jews are creating redemption. They are always in the process of trying to generate their own redemption, generate their own solution. So now, this is what, in, in the, the, the study of religion, Jonathan Z. Smith refers to religions as functioning like maps. That maps orient us in the world and they give us a sense of what our task is. And I have to admit, I love maps because I cannot navigate to save my life without a map. The invention of the GPS has saved me countless hours of driving around, unable to find my way. So much so that my daughters, when, when they were little, when my, my oldest daughter, who's nine now, when she was only three or four, I was driving somewhere very nearby where even I knew where I was going and I didn't have my GPS on. And she said, she's very diplomatic, she said, Daddy, where's your little talking map? <laughs> and I said, well, I know the way to the JCC. She said, well, just in case. <laughs> My, my younger daughter is less diplomatic. She says, Daddy, do you have any idea where you're going? <laughs> and it's a legitimate question. But maps are wonderful because they give us a sense of what the world looks like, where we are in it, and what our task is. Right? Turn here. It gives you an actionable plan by giving you a way of understanding the world and giving you a way of envisioning your place in it. And Kabbalah has functioned in this way for many people, so much so that as Kabbalah migrates out of medieval Spain, it goes into all sorts of other domains where Jews enthusiastically embrace it. Within just a few hundred years, the Zohar is literally canonized alongside the Bible, the Talmud, we have the Zohar as the sort of three pillars of the Jewish canon. That's, that's a remarkable thing for a text that we don't find a single quotation from until 1281, Suddenly, by somewhere in the late 1400s, it's celebrated really quite broadly throughout the world Jewish community. And by the 16th century, it's really embraced as, as a, an absolutely canonical Jewish text in a way that no other text before or since has been able to achieve. By the mid-16th century, Isaac Luria and the Kabbalists of Sfat initiate really a, an important kind of second revolution within the history of Kabbalah. Isaac Luria writes very little in his day, but his disciples go on to write many, many books. They also do something that I think is nigh on miraculous. The disciples of Luria introduce a new service that is 
almost, not quite, but almost universally embraced by Jews around the world, the Lachadodi, I mean, the, the Kabbalat Shabbat service. Have you, have you ever said the Kabbalat Shabbat service? Can you imagine someone introducing a service now that suddenly everywhere from Yemen to Argentina, from Canada to, to Australia would be embraced by every Jew and, and performed in every synagogue? I, I mean, it's almost unimaginable. And there are certain prayers within that service that have specific Kabbalistic meanings. One in particular, the Lecha Dodi prayer, which goes through the sort of different layers of the Spirot. It's talking about the re reception of meeting the Kala, meeting the bride. And in fact, there's the tradition of standing up at the last verse and turning around and opening the door and, and writing, inviting the bride in, come, O bride, come, O bride. She's coming to meet her groom. Have you ever said the Lachadobdi prayer and said, Bowi kala, Bowi kala? You're all Kabbalists. <laughs> You're all unwitting Kabbalists. But it's because Kabbalah has had this tremendous sort of importance in shaping Jewish tradition and in shaping Jewish rituals. There was the development of, for instance, the Tikkun Leil Shavuot, staying up all night on the holiday of Shavuot to, uh, to, to study. I see many of you shaking your head. Again, Kabbalists. Although I should know that a very persuasive academic article was written arguing that the progression throughout Europe and the Ottoman Empire um, of the Tikkun Leil Shavuot also follows the progression of readily available coffee. No kidding. Um, so that, that may have multiple factors at play. There was also the mid-17th century uh, messianic mystic and the movement surrounding Shabtai Tzvi. Perhaps one-third of the world believed he was the Messiah. I'll have a talk where we talk about this. Spoiler alert, he was not the Messiah. But this movement would have been impossible in the absence of Kabbalistic thinking. In the mid-18th century, Hasidism, Hasidism is a thoroughly Kabbalistic movement. It's a thoroughly radical movement that yet is also tremendously conservative. And it's Kabbalistic through and through, especially in, the, in its origins. In the 20th century, religious Zionism, of course, at first the, the, the religious and orthodox camp was very opposed to Zionism. But in the movement around Rav Kook, many of the the arguments in favor of religious Zionism, the arguments in favor of actively pursuing redemption were articulated very Kabbalistically. And then in the contemporary period, Jewish renewal, which emphasizes the power of human actions, utilizes Kabbalistic imagery. And then we find, of course, in the 20th century and in the contemporary moment, um, movements such as the, the New Age Kabbalah, the Kabbalah Center, these are powerful movements in the world. And that's just within the Jewish world. Outside the Jewish world, there have been Christian Kabbalists, Renaissance thinkers like Pico della Mirandola and the Renaissance humanists were deeply influenced explicitly by Kabbalah. And uh, I'll argue in one talk, even early Mormonism and the movements around Joseph Smith were in fact very interested in Jewish secrets. They regarded them as perhaps containing something really important for them and they co-opted some of these ideas as well. As Western Ashkenazi Jews, we live in an unusual historical blip, a moment where since the Middle Ages, since really the 13th century, we are living in a de form of Judaism. 
For many Western Ashkenazi Jews in the post-Enlightenment world who are not Hasidic, we don't realize all of the Kabbalistic things we're doing. And we also don't realize the way in which Jewish survival has been in some ways connected with Kabbalistic ideas. But if you were Hasidic, if you were Sephardic or Mizrahi, these Kabbalistic notions would be much closer to the surface. And this makes it surprising to us when we see Kabbalah as this very public secret. But throughout Jewish history and even beyond it, Kabbalah, or perhaps more specifically, the claim of Jewish secrets revealed by God has found a way amazingly, really remarkably, to breathe life into virtually everything it encounters. The story of Kabbalah is a fascinating and surprising one about transformation and continuity. And I'm quite certain this story is far from over. Thank you. Um, I believe we have uh, time for questions. There are yes. It's a great question. Um, at first, it was believed that Moses delegated. So the question was, who wrote the Zohar? And at first, it was believed that Moses de Leon wrote the Zohar. So as in the scholarship on Kabbalah, the famous scholar of Kabbalah, um, Gershom Sholem, argued that this was essentially something written as a kind of forgery by Moses de Leon. And there had been earlier people, sort of critics of the Zohar, who had said this as well. More recent scholarship has argued that there was more of a uh, sort of a chug ha-Zohar, a Zohar group that was responsible for putting together the text that we now call the Zohar. More recent scholarship than that, friends of mine who I was just talking to at the conference, have been exploring Zohar manuscripts, and it turns out the Zohar manuscripts are a complete mess. There are many different versions of the Zohar. The one that you generally see printed on the shelf is from Mantua, and it's based on the Mantua printing. But there are many different parts to it. It's not clear which parts are written at which points. There are some that might be introduced as late as the 1330s. Um, it's a very confusing question, because texts in the Middle Ages were not something where someone wrote a text from beginning to end, put their name on it, and then it was sealed. They just sort of text floated around, and people copied them and added to them, or took away from them. And so this messiness of the Zohar um, makes it impossible to answer that question, which I think actually makes it that much more of an interesting thing for the study of Jewish history. Many, many hands were involved in the production of this literature and the dissemination of this literature. It was many people who were invested in it and many people who were thinking in those terms. Uh, yes? started off by talking about the importance in Kabbalah of what is revealed. What exactly was revealed? How was this defined? Was Torah revealed? What about Talmud? Uh, where do you make the break between what is generated from intellect and what is revelation? Ah, so for them, all, so the question is, for Kabbalists, what how do they understand the domain of revealed knowledge in relation to, say, rational knowledge? Like, what are the things that are rationally derived and what are the things that are 
that are revealed through some sort of revelatory process and then tradition of transmission that brings it down to whatever moment a person is thinking about that revealed knowledge. Um, the Kabbalists would argue that all the really important Jewish things are in fact revealed knowledge. So the Torah is revealed, the oral Torah or the, so the, the Talmud or the, the elements of the Talmud that derive from the oral Torah are revealed, and Kabbalah is revealed. But Kabbalah is the, the system of ideas that shows the true meaning of what the Torah says and what the Talmud says. So those things taken together and read Kabbalistically, those are, those are the revealed doctrines, as opposed to other domains of knowledge, math, astronomy, um, other forms of science. They, they agree that these, these forms of knowledge were quite useful. Um, Kabbalists were, were not opposed to these kinds of science. They were probably involved in them. And, and at least so there's one I'm quite certain of, but probably many others as well. Kabbalists were physicians. And they read medical textbooks, some of which were based upon empirical evidence. If you give this substance to a person, do they get better or do they die? And they would take notes and say, don't give it up to anybody. And they, 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 were, they were open to this kind of empirical, empirical science. They just didn't see empirical science as having anything really important to tell Jews about the nature of their Jewish identities and Jewish experiences. For that, they would resort to reveal knowledge. And Kabbalah created this very creative discourse of revealed knowledge for Jews. Yes? Does every religion have this dichotomy of revealed knowledge? rational knowledge? And if so, is Judaism the first religion to come up with a sophisticated system of revealed knowledge such as Kabbalah? Um, so let's stick with the Western religious traditions. Yes, they all three, what Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all three of them do have um, some notion of uh, the revealed versus um, rational. However, within each of those religions, not everyone is as persuaded um, that those are so different. So you have um, some more scientifically inclined in all three of those traditions who will say, revealed and rational knowledge are actually um, in harmony with one another, and if it looks like they're not in harmony with one another, you need to read revealed knowledge symbolically to make it reconcile with rational knowledge. That would be Maimonides' approach in Judaism. You have others who say, when it looks like they're not compatible, you need to read rational knowledge symbolically so that it can be compatible with revealed knowledge. Um, and then you have others who say that they are compatible uh, parallels. They're compatible separate domains. <coughs> but all three of those traditions do have um, this notion of revealed knowledge and rational knowledge. What's unique for Judaism in the context of Western culture is that, especially in the pre-modern world, Christians and Muslims regarded Jews as the inheritors of the most important original revelation, and therefore had a certain anxiety that Jews could, in fact, have retained some special knowledge from the revelation on Mount Sinai that only they were there to hear. And this became a very 
useful device for Jews thinking through their, their own way of understanding their tradition. It, it made sense for them to emphasize that originary revelatory moment because it was something only they could have been present for. Um, for Christians and Muslims, the, those claims to reveal knowledge that you know, has a secret origin somewhere in God leaves them asking, are we talking about after the Jews or you know, before the Jews? Like, th this is always their question because they couldn't reach back prior to Jewish tradition. As a result, there were some um, Christian authorities in the Middle Ages who were very suspicious of any kind of mystical doctrine because they saw it as Judaizing. They saw it as potentially Judaizing. So this, this was that one sort of piece of the structure of Western religi religious traditions that put Jews in somewhat um, a better position than, 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 other, than the other religions. Yes? You mentioned the beginning of Kabbalah around the eighth, ninth century, but before that, no, more like eleven eighty to twelve hundred. Okay, is that in any way disconnected? There is no connection to the ideas of Masemer Kabbalah that were prevailing in the early uh, second, third century of by uh, Jewish agnostics and so on. So. Because they were somehow, somehow I see a relationship between the two, and yet there is. It looks from the way you put it that there is a cutoff between them. You ask a wonderful question. So thank you. Yes, that's a, that's an oversimplification. When I sort of point out that there's a a discontinuity between Kabbalah and the other tradition. Well, that's true. It's not entirely true. There are interesting affinities between what we read in medieval Kabbalah and what we do see in the rabbinic tradition. So the Maaseh Mer Kabbalah, this is the descriptions of the divine chariot um, that, that we find in some forms of rabbinic literature from late antiquity. There, there is something that's, it's not the tense we wrote, it's not quite the idea about human actions through the performance of the mitzvot, holding the universe together and bringing the divine bridegroom and bride together exactly, but it is an idea that there's a concealed divine realm that certain special people can get access to, including Moses on Mount Sinai, and that this is part of what's going on in the rabbinic tradition in an unstated way. So those affinities are clearly there, and that there is a continuity. It's just that if we look at the many thousands of pages of the Talmud, Things that sound like Kabbalah are very rare. They're there, but you have to look for them. And so it's sort of like if someone went through a haystack and gathered a sort of bundle of needles. The needles were in the haystack, but it takes some work to find them. And you have to wonder, why do they extract those particular things out of this enormous uh, library of material? Um, but nonetheless, there is a, a certain element of um, at least compatibility with those particular aspects of the rabbinic tradition, which may have also helped um, rabbinically trained Jews feel like they could find some, something to hang the Kabbalistic tradition on within the rabbinic tradition. Yes?
ensuring their own survival as well, so that we're really important because we, you can't obliterate us because we, we have a special piece of knowledge that nobody else has. So we need to stick around. And then the other question. So here, let me start with that question first because I hear people asking what the question was. So I'll repeat it through the microphone. Um, the question is whether the, um, the fact that Jews could claim this, this early revelation that others didn't have, that they have, might have this knowledge that others don't have stemming from Sinai, that Christians and Muslims can't claim, um, whether that was part of the reason why Jews would hold on to that particular um, way of fashioning the origin of Kabbalistic ideas as a way of as a form of self-preservation. Is that a fair restatement of your question? And so I would say, yes, indeed. And one of the questions that you kind of can't help but ask when you look at medieval literature of any kind is, are Jews reading Christian literature and are Christians reading Jews literature? So Jews are clearly very familiar with Christian literature. The other direction, it's not entirely certain. It's not entirely certain that Christians are reading Kabbalah. In fact, Catalysts say so many critical things of Christianity in medieval Kabbalah that I, I think they thought Christians were not reading it, or else they might have had trouble. Um, also, in Castile, you can get away with that sort of thing, because as long as you know, you're there practicing business and doing whatever, Christian authorities were not looking to police Jewish literature. Nonetheless, I, I don't think that Jews were articulating that particular strategy for grounding Kabbalistic knowledge because it was persuasive to Christians. I think it was persuasive to Jews because Jews have to think about themselves in the Middle Ages in terms of how Christians see them. When Jews think about Jewish identity, they can't not think about the critiques of Judaism directed at them by Christian Polemicists. Jews were forced to attend Christian sermons, where Christians would actually, the, the soldiers of the king would come to the synagogue on a Saturday morning, and the rabbi would have to step aside, can you imagine this? The rabbi would have to step aside, a Christian preacher, usually one of the mendicant, from one of the mendicant orders, a Franciscan or a Dominican friar, would come in and stand in the synagogue and preach to the crowd for an hour about why Judaism is the wrong religion and Christianity is the right one and say all the things that are wrong with Judaism, including Jews have clearly missed the boat because look how bad your life is. Oh. And that, that requires strong response. And this was a very common thing, these forced sermons. There were also public disputations. Rabbi Moses and Nachmanides, who I mentioned, and I see some of you nodding your heads in 1263, a famous, famous public disputation in front of the Pope and the King of Aragon. And in 1263, he, he really, I think, wins an argument against Pablo Cristiani, and then has to leave the country forever. <laughs> right? This, this was not necessarily a good thing. And that's because the king loved him. The pope wanted his head for the things he had said about Christianity. Because one of the other tricks is Jews aren't allowed to criticize Christianity publicly. But this was a way where they don't have to. They can say, well, this comes from Mount Sinai and you weren't there, right? And, and it's part of their way of thinking about themselves in a, as a powerful response, but not because they're responding to Christians, they're responding to their own questions that are forced upon them by Christians. Uh, yes, in the back. Uh, yeah, first of all, thank you. You're, you're terrific. Uh, 
really enticed us, uh, or maybe some of us, um, when in the beginning of your talk, uh, you mentioned um, the un un possibly unseemly reality of Jews surviving all this time and how that, how that might be. You talked a lot about Kabbalah and the Zohar. I'm wondering if you think it's because of the Keeper of the Secrets issue. Um, do you think it's maybe because of the covenant uh, this, this pact, we live as a life of, of example, and then we'll survive. Um, what are your thoughts? What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean that's a good question. This is a question I'm always thinking about. Um, so the question is, where, how, how does how does this system of Kabbalistic ideas? How did that help? I guess maybe we could say reinforce the Jewish notion of covenant and then enable Jewish survival over time. Oh, and do you know, is there another religion or doctrine that has that deal, that, that claims that God says, you do this, and I'll make sure you survive ongoingly? Um, most, most traditions do have that kind of claim, that if they, if they, if they, do, if they do perform divine will, um, that they will receive divine favor. But, of course, as you point out, in the, the context of the biblical covenant, the, the, what, what is promised in that arrangement is, um, is continuity, is security. In the biblical case, security in the land and, and sort of redemption, long life in the land. Um, my question for the purpose of Kabbalah in Jewish history is really, how did this help preserve a sense of Jewish identity such that Jews didn't simply either convert away from Judaism or forget Judaism or abandon Judaism. Um, like I said, many, many religions have existed throughout history and, and, and yet Judaism has had this sort of remarkable persistence. And what I think seems to be the case is that Kabbalah, it's not the only reason, there's lots of reasons, but Kabbalah is one of the ways that Jews were able to feel a sense of their own meaning and empowerment that made it feel worthwhile to persist in the face of some very difficult historical circumstances. In fact, it even made difficult historical circumstances feel meaningful. And I think that's, that's part of what has been appealing about Kabbalah, and part of what's made it um, important. Yes? I've always had difficulty with why a loving God would allow Um, I think they are just as bothered by that question. And they don't provide easy answers for it. What, what instead they do is they, they illustrate how problematic that question is, and that the world simply refuses to conform to our expectations of it, and that God himself is mysterious on this score. Um, I, I found one, um, I thought, really honest, comment about this in a Munich manuscript. It was, in, it was so remarkable to me. I still remember the day I was sitting in, in the Hebrew library, the library of Hebrew manuscripts, and, and it was from Munich 305, and it says, the, the, the righteous man is rewarded as would be appropriate, and the, the, the evil person is punished as would be appropriate. However, the nature, he says, the, the, how does he put it, the nature of, of the reward cannot be comprehended with the mind, and the nature of the punishment cannot be known in this world. But it's there, 
right? Which is another way of saying the world really doesn't look just. And I'm not going to say it all just comes out in the wash. I'm going to say this must be truly incomprehensible. I, I think that that's a sort of honest way of saying they're bothered by these questions. And capitalistic literature doesn't say, don't worry your pretty little head, it'll all be fine. <laughs> Instead it says, yes, that is a very troubling state of affairs. And we acknowledge that. Um, and I think there's, there's something remarkably honest about, about the way capitalists um, formulate their responses to those problems. Thank you. Let's do one more question Okay, sure. Uh, this side of the room, yes. Uh, sure, could you comment on what seems to be the universally ignored uh, recommendation that you not study Kabbalah unless you're a certain age, a certain gender, you have a job, you're married. Children? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I turned 40 last March, so I think I finally went legit. Um, <laughs> what is really interesting is that Kabbalists did not regard that in the Middle Ages as the prohibition mentioned in, the, in, in rabbinic literature about not studying the mysteries of the chariot, the Maasei Merkava mentioned before. They don't seem to think that that applies to Kabbalah. Um, in fact, there's one very important Kabbalist, Rabbi Yosef Jiketila, um, from Castile in the late 13th century, and one of his first Kabbalistic books, Inade Goes, he says in the very beginning of it that he wrote it when he was 26 years old. And, and he really likes that because 26 is the numerical equivalent, equivalent, the gematria, of the divine name. But he doesn't say, but in fact I'm only 40 and I have a job and a couple of kids and I'm married. He, he doesn't do that. They're, they're not worried about that. So I think generally, um, at least when you look before the time of Isaac Gloria, most Kabbalists weren't concerned um, about that prohibition. They didn't think of it as applying to, to capitalistic literature. Uh, thank, thank you very much.